passage comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. This is God's word. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And as we said last week, if uh, you feel a need that you need to get up and walk around in the back, please feel free. Uh, that's not a problem. There's also a room. We don't have a name for this room. It's that little awkward room to my left in that corner. Uh, we've set up a speaker back there. If you need to go there and just be, you'd still be able to be part of the larger service uh, if your child needs to, to have a little bit of time there. We're starting a new Sunday morning teaching series today, and to get us started on it, let me ask a question. It's a question that we all wrestle with, but one that we hardly think about, and that is, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to? If you're a child, and again, we're very thankful that our children could be here today. If you're a child, the answer is obvious, right? Who do you listen to? You listen to mom and dad. They love you, they know what's best for you, you can trust them, they've proven that. Who do you listen to? To mom and dad. Until, until you get older, and then maybe like your brother and sister, you join a sports team. Now who do you listen to? Well, you listen to your coach, obviously. Or then maybe later you go into school and you start taking some harder classes. Maybe older, older brother and sister take calculus, and you discover there that Parents and coaches aren't always that helpful. And so who do you listen to then? You, you listen to your teacher. Those are all times where it's relatively easy to know who to listen to. Sometimes, however, it's harder. Because maybe you and a friend make a mistake sometimes. Sometime. You might do something wrong. You know you should tell your parents. They've told you don't ever keep secrets from us. You know they'll be helpful. But your friend says, don't tell anyone especially your parents, because then we'll get in trouble. Now who do you listen to? Do you listen to your parents or to your friend? And if you think about it, you start to realize there are a lot of different people over the course of your life who want you to listen to them. A lot of different voices that tell you, here's how to think about life, and here's what you ought to do. 
which means what? You, you can't listen to all those voices at the same time. You have to decide. You have to decide to pay more attention to some voices and not to listen to others. And we all have to do that. This is not for kids, obviously. The older ones among us got the point, I think. It's for all of us. What do we call all of those voices that try to influence us? They're authorities. An authority tells you, in this area, at this time, this is the best way to think. And over the course of our lives, we have lots of authorities speaking to us, trying to help us figure out what it is that we should do. Part of being human, then, means what? We are responsible for who we listen to at any given time. Now, when God speaks in the Bible, that's another authority, except his authority is different because he says that his authority counts all the time for every area of life, that in this sense, his authority is over top of all of the other authorities, and his authority tells you how to interact with all the other authorities. There's a theological word for this, and, and I think this is one that we all ought to know, because this is the point, one of the points at which the church is very challenged today. And that word is sufficient. We can talk about the authority of Scripture, but we need to talk even more about the sufficiency of Scripture. Not that Scripture talks about every single thing that you might be interested in, but it gives you a way of thinking about every single thing that you'll ever encounter in life. And so when we talk about the Word of God, we're not talking about one authority alongside a whole lot of others. We're talking about one that's over all the others, one that is sufficient, adequate enough in order to guide you in all of life. And the reason that we're going to take two months to study this this fall is because many Christians do not live that way. Instead, they tend to treat God's Word like an encyclopedia. And I debated whether to use this illustration or not because I'm thinking many of you don't even know what an encyclopedia is. People treat God's Word like an encyclopedia. When I was little, we didn't have Google. What did we have? We had encyclopedias. And encyclopedias are really thick books, sometimes a lot of really thick books, that are just full of things that you might be interested in. And so you look at these books that are all arranged by topic, and if you want to know something, you have to think, okay, what might that topic be called? You couldn't just Google several keywords. You had to think about what that topic might be called, and then you looked it up. And they really were helpful, as long as you found the thing that you were interested in. Sometimes, however, the thing that you wanted to know about, it happened after the encyclopedia was published. And so it didn't matter how hard you looked for that. You just could not find it in the encyclopedia. That's how some people treat Scripture, like it's an encyclopedia. And so they have a problem that they want some help with, or they have a topic they want to look up, and they open the Bible and they get really frustrated <laughs> because the Bible seems like the worst organized encyclopedia that you can possibly imagine feels like it's impossible to find the topic that I want in there because nothing's arranged by topic. The things that you are interested in are what? They're either spread throughout Scripture or you can't find them at all because you don't know what the keyword is to look up. And it starts to feel after a while like maybe God's just not interested 
in talking about this thing that I'm interested in or that this thing that I'm interested in is too modern for God, that it's happened afterward, and so his thoughts, his ideas are out of date. And so what a lot of Christians think is that, yes, God is authoritative over a very small number of things. They think that his authority is limited to certain topics, to things like living a moral life, to getting into heaven. And so even though the Bible's pretty thick, it only covers a small segment of life. And that if you want to know other things like relationship advice, things like personal identity, how to parent your children, how to succeed in your career, how to be a scientist, you're going to have to turn to some other authority. So for a lot of Christians, we have a Bible encyclopedia at home on our shelf. We really like it, but it's stacked alongside a whole lot of other books, other authorities that we turn to when we have questions about life, things that we think you can't find in the Bible. And the way that God describes his word is different. What God claims is that he speaks about everything in some way that you're ever going to encounter in life. And so he talks about his word as more like a set of glasses that you wear than a reference book that you would look up topics in. You ever had your eyes suddenly change on you? I was working on the house one time, discovered that my, my eyes no longer work the way that I thought they did. I'm trying to hammer a nail into a closet wall, and I can't see the nail. And so I'm doing one of these old people things. I'm backing way up, I'm squinting hard, and I'm just sort of wailing away, hoping that I'm hitting the nail. What happened? The world did not change. The world was still the way the world always had been, but my perception of it was off. I didn't see the world the way it really was, and I needed to get a new prescription for my glasses. I needed that to bring the world back into focus so that I could see it correctly. That is kind of like what Scripture does. It brings the world into focus better so that you can live well here. But that analogy misses something because Scripture does even more than that. Think about it this way. Even people with perfect eyesight don't see this physical world the way it is. You ever seen those pictures of flowers that get taken under ultraviolet light? What we see as a single color, a white flower or a yellow flower, actually has all these patterns in it that get revealed under ultraviolet light, and apparently insects have eyes that can see the ultraviolet pattern, and they get led into the nectar. Their eyes see a world that's what? That, that's hidden from us. That's what God says his word does. It brings into focus what we can see and it shows us what in our blindness we couldn't see. That's introduction to the whole series. Let's see that in Colossians today and anchor this really in scripture. Paul says in verse one, he's working hard. He's struggling. Why is he struggling? Verse two, hang with me here with this verse. I, this one is a little convoluted. Verse 2, so that the hearts of believers may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
you look at that verse and you think, that, 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 that's a lot of prepositional phrases. And, and I got lost after the second or third one. That's why I will often read different versions, because my mind doesn't always work in that more poetic kind of language. That's why, honestly, when I was a teenager, I went out with my own allowance money and bought a different Bible, because the Bible my church used, I didn't really understand. If you're a little bit like me, you might want to look at different versions. The Christian Standard Bible came out several years ago, CSB. It's a very, very, very good translation, very accurate. The English is a little bit more like what I get. This is verse 2. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love for this reason, so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Think, okay, maybe I understand the ESV a little bit better now. Full assurance of understanding, complete understanding, that's my goal. That you and I would completely, that we would fully understand, that we would have knowledge of God's mystery, of Christ. That we would have that inside track. We would understand what God has been doing in this world by sending Jesus the Messiah here. And it's this Jesus who's the source of all wisdom and knowledge. In him are hidden, what, uh, tucked away, out of sight. You have to shine ultraviolet light on him. In him are hidden all the treasures. Not some, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Which makes, you, it makes me ask, wisdom and knowledge for, for what? Because the context here changes what wisdom and knowledge is for. They sound all-inclusive, complete, full, all. But we can play devil's advocate for a moment, right? Because you could have complete knowledge of playing an instrument, complete knowledge of violin, piano, percussion, whatever. And that knowledge would not help you a bit when it comes to cooking dinner. Would not help you a bit when it comes to kicking a soccer ball. Why? Each of those areas are limited. And you can have full knowledge of one that does not impact the other. So is complete knowledge of Christ like that? Is it limited to one area or is it bigger? Here's where really reading the whole book is helpful. Because back in chapter one, you've already been given an idea of the context. Paul's already talked about this Christ and he's talked about how many things this Christ is involved in. And so you learn in verse 13 that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, into the kingdom of this Christ, a whole realm. We learn that verse 16, it's this Christ who's created everything that there is. That verse 17, he didn't just create it, he now holds it all together. And verse 20, he didn't create it, hold it all together, but now he is reconciling everything, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, to God, making peace by the blood of his cross. You realize we're not talking about a very small little sphere of knowledge. We're talking about everything. We're talking about the entire cosmos. God is saying that there isn't anyone who has more knowledge of the cosmos than Jesus. 
See, if you're going to build something, you're going to create something, the universe, you'd have to know more about it than anyone else does. Jesus does. If you're going to keep something running, if you're going to hold it all together, hold the universe together, you have to know how every single piece works. Jesus does. But the biggest need for knowledge comes if something breaks. Because then not only do you have to know what it was to start with, you have to know what went wrong, and you have to know how to put it all back together again so that it works the way that it was supposed to work initially. That's what's happening in reconciliation. God says the biggest problem of this world is that it is not reconciled to him, that it ran away from him, that it's separated from him, that it needs to be reconciled doing a lot of theological words with you today. There's another one, alienation. That means that the universe and everything in it is separated from God. That human beings, because of our sin and evil, struck out on our own. We told God, we don't need to listen to you. There's another authority that we would rather listen to instead, the serpent. And when we listen to him, we put distance between ourselves and God. We walked away on our own from the source of all knowledge and wisdom. And because God put us in charge of the world, we took that universe with us as we went away from God. And here's the grace of God. This is amazing. God doesn't look at that, throw up his hands, and just let us run. Instead, Jesus on the cross did what had to be done to reconcile not just people, but the whole broken world back to God. And that tells you what the source of all of our problems is from God's perspective. It's that we've tried to live our lives by ignoring him, by ignoring what he has to say, by being alienated from him. From God's perspective, that's ultimately what's wrong with the world. Why is there racism, war, economic injustice, political injustice, immorality, greed, keep on going down the whole list. God says the source of all those problems goes back to a fundamental disconnect with him. Are there secondary causes to all of those things? the impact of social training, the impact of societal structures, the impact of personal suffering, of, of traumatic life experiences, of living in a body that doesn't work right, with a brain that isn't wired the way it's supposed to be. You realize, yeah, of course all of those are involved. They're all secondary. But if you address just those aspects and you miss the underlying source of those aspects, you'll just see them crop up in a different way because all you're doing is addressing the symptoms of a broken world. And what Jesus did is he addressed the source of that brokenness. He brought runaway people living in a runaway world back to God. Because from God's perspective, there is no healing, there is no fixing, there's no righting of wrongs without that first reconciliation. And it's then, once you've been rec reconciled, 
then now you have access, that's chapter one, now you have access, chapter two, to all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge that are in Christ. Because you now have the key to everything that God talks about in Scripture. Jesus talks a number of different times about how it all points to him, how it all points to what he's doing in the world. And when you have that key, now you understand how to approach the world, how to live right in a world that's gone wrong, because now you can see the things that you didn't see before, and you can see the things that were out of focus before. And yet you realize as you follow Christ that even after this reconciliation, there's still all those voices out there, still all those rival authorities. That's the whole point of the book of Colossians, that there were these teachers who were going around, they were essentially saying, you know, it's okay to start with Jesus. You have to start somewhere. But if you want to live a really full, satisfying spiritual life, you have to add in all these other things as well. And Paul goes after that head on, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by what? By philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You realize it's so easy to add other sources of authority. You can pull them from human philosophy, from human traditions, other voices, and put them alongside the Bible. It's very easy to agree with the false teachers who say, if you don't add these in, you just don't have enough to go on. God's Word doesn't cover enough. It's not sufficient. And Paul tells you, verse 4, you have to be really careful because if you don't do the hard work of knowing what God has said, if you don't do the hard work of seeing the world through the lens of what God has said, then his words, there is a plausible argument these other folks will put out there for you. It'll sound reasonable. It'll sound good, like something you want to be involved in. And you'll discover later that you're listening to a different source of authority. Sidney Smith Sounds like a relative of mine, but she isn't. Sydney Smith wanted a longer neck. You can look her up on the internet. Not, not now. Sydney had always been a fan of giraffes from her childhood, and she had decided as an adult she wanted a longer neck so that she would look a little more like a giraffe. She wanted to be known as the Western giraffe woman. And so she wore 15 copper rings around her neck, trying to force it to become longer. It didn't work you can't change your DNA from the outside. So she took them out, off after five years, her neck went back to normal. And if you ask, <laughs> why, why would she do something like that? You're gonna get a variety of answers. Some people are gonna say, who knows? I, I can't relate. Probably just some kind of unknown fetish. Other people say, no, it's got to be more than that. You don't do that just for some unknown reason. It had to be some kind of trauma in her background that turned this cute love of giraffes into something much more severe. Other people will say, no, actually, there's a whole classification of people with species dysphoria, people who identify more with animals than with humans. They describe themselves as other kin or therian. 
Other people will say, no, it's not a dysphoria. There's nothing wrong in her brain, nothing wrong in her brain chemistry, nothing wrong in her background. She just doesn't feel comfortable in her own body. She's finding ways to get in touch with who she really is. And besides, it's her body, her choice. She can do whatever she wants to with it as long as she feels she's being authentic to her true self. What are all those and the ones that I'm not going through? They're philosophies and traditions according to man, according to humans. They are attempts to explain in some sense some of what you're seeing. How do you know that they are based on human philosophies and human traditions? How do you know that they're the kind of things that Paul's addressing here? Because while obviously they come from different perspectives, they all have the same thing in common. The same thing runs throughout all of them, and that is that they all address the question without taking God into account. Not one of them takes her alienation from God seriously. And so not one of them helps you understand the underlying issue from God's perspective. God in his word does. <laughs> but not if you treat his word like an encyclopedia. Because if you treat his word like an encyclopedia, you're going to do what? You're going to say, well, I have to look up something, giraffe envy? You're not going to find an awful lot with that approach. And you'll think to yourself, okay, it's time to pull a different book off the shelf to understand this. But remember, Scripture gives you a lens. It gives you a big picture. If you're thinking like that, then maybe you would start in Genesis 1. You could start in a lot of places. Maybe start in Genesis 1, where you learn that human beings are not just another species, all on the same plane, just like all the rest of the animal kingdom, but that God made us in his image in a way that does separate us from all other physical creatures in the universe. And that as his images, his representatives, he set us over the rest of the world, not to become like it, to take our cues from it, but to care for it, to nurture it. But then Genesis 3 tells you a horrible story. It tells you how Adam and Eve rejected God's good plan, listened to a different authority, refused to represent him, sinned against him, and at the end of Genesis 3, they end up how? Clothed in animal skins. So that the image of God is no longer on display like it once was. The image of God is now covered up by something in the creation. They are no longer distinct, separate above the rest of creation, caring for it like God himself would. Now they're submerged beneath it, covered up by it, blended into it. Or you could go to Romans 1 and get the same understanding. That reversal of our place in the world is clearly spelled out there. That when you refuse to worship God, you will worship something else instead. You can't help it. You'll bow down to something in creation. You will elevate something in creation, and that will have an impact on your life. Verse 23, you will exchange the glory of the immortal God for an image made to look like a mortal human being or a bird or a reptile or an animal, like a giraffe. And when that happens, we no longer obey God. 
And so when he tells us in the 10th commandment that you shall not covet, you shall not be ungrateful for what God has given you. You shall not wish you had something that he didn't give you but gave to another. You shall not covet. You shall not demand a different body than the one he gave you. We hear that command and we tell him, no, this is what I feel I should have. This is what I think will make me most filled up, most satisfied. And so we try to take something that isn't ours. Because we rejected the God who gives us what he knows is best for us and gives to others what he knows is best for them. And when you start thinking in that way, suddenly Sydney is no longer an anomaly, is she? She's no longer very different from you and me. Because now we can all relate to her. No one, spend time with people, no one is completely happy with the body that they have. We've all wished that we had something different. Some of us just want little stuff. Some of us would really like to have straight hair. Others of us would really like to have curly hair. Some of us just want different color. Others want more. We covet more. We wish we were taller, because if we were taller, then life would be good. Others of us feel like we're too tall. We'd really like to be a little shorter. Some of us would like to be thinner. Others of us would like to be bigger. We all know what it is to covet a different body. And here's the gospel. Instead of leaving us in our desires, Jesus paid. He paid for all of that horrible reversal, all of that broken worship, so that he could reconcile us back to God. So we could take back our place as God's images. And he doesn't just come to us and rip off the animal clothes so that now we stand naked before God and everyone else. But what does he do? Galatians 3.27. We're now clothed with Christ. We're now wrapped around spiritually, with the perfect image of God, restored to bearing God's image, frankly, in a way that we didn't in the garden. So we can now take our place in the universe fully representing God. Why? Because God himself became one of us to reconcile us to what we should be. We could keep on going this morning. Don't have time for that. When you see the big picture of Scripture, suddenly you realize it talks to every aspect of life. It doesn't leave a single thing out. But why, in closing, why would you embrace what Scripture says as being the sufficient authority in your life? Why would you embrace Scripture as the authority over all the other authorities? Why would you embrace this? Why would you do that? I'm going to give you the short version of why. If you're interested in the longer one, reach out to me. I'm happy to talk about that more. The short version includes two things. Why would you embrace Scripture as the authority over your life? First, because Jesus embraced it as the authority for his life. Jesus quoted Scripture constantly, and he did so at the worst times of his life, at the most pressure-packed moments. When he was squeezed harder than we can imagine, what is it that came out of him? What came out is the thing that he was holding on to. What comes out is Scripture. Just read the crucifixion accounts, and you hear Scripture coming out. It was the guide for him as he processed his own life. 
It was the guide for the perfect image of God. That's first. Second, again, devil's advocate, why should that matter to you? Why should what this perfect image of God thought, why should that matter to you? Because second, no one's ever loved you like he has. And it was according to the scripture that he's loved you. Before his death, he told his disciples in Luke chapter 18, see, we're going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets, everything in Scripture, will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they'll kill him, and on the third day he will rise. Jesus knew before he went what was going to happen to him there because it was clear in Scripture. And yet he allowed that to be the authority over his life, and he went there anyway. Why? Because he also knew from Scripture what this would mean for you. After he rose, Jesus appeared to his disciples in Luke 24. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Why would you trust what Jesus trusted? Because he's only ever been invested in your life for what's best for you. He has never hurt you at all. And he was invested at huge cost to himself. Why? Because he wanted you, loved you, did not want an eternity without you. You can trust then what he trusted because you can trust him. This son of God who used all of his godness, all of his Bible-informed view of life, used all of that to care about you, to restore you back to the image of God you were supposed to be. No one has ever loved you like that. Let him reconcile you, and you'll have no problem wanting to hear everything that he has to say about life. Lord Jesus, thank you. You have given us an incredible gift. You gave us scripture. You gave us your word. We didn't obey. We didn't follow you. You came to this earth in order to obey, to follow your very own words. And because you did that perfectly, you were able to reconcile us to yourself. Lord, we're very, very grateful. Thank you for pointing us back to yourself this morning. Lord, thank you for communion, for your incredible sacrifice for us that allows us to even talk to you, and allows us to come now to remember you and to experience you. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.